Fuera. Cristina, está el libro fuera. El libro está fuera. ¿Lo has visto? No. Hola. Spain last Friday, he must to be in Madrid, and I will do a, I will do his introduction as Eco Foundation director, and I you for uh, for understanding that we part of the debate, but uh, we sincerely prefer just Fernando talking about the Spanish position. So first of all, I want to stress my gratitude to Brugger. Thank you for giving us the opportunity for the fifth consecutive year to present here the Euro the Euro Yearbook in this house. And by doing so, we contribute to the debate on the challenging situation of the European Monetary Union. This study, as in previous years, has been carried out through the partnership of Fundación ICO and Fundación de Estudios Financieros. Thank you, Professor Fernando Fernandez, for your great support coordinating it. Your expertise has made possible for the Euro Yearbook to become a genuine platform of discussion among experts. And this presentation is becoming an annual appointment for all those concerned about the future of the European Union. This is what Professor Fernandez and collaborators talk about in the executive summary on the 10 chapters of the 2017 yearbook. 
study offers an overview of the monetary union, taking into account the new political context. It analyzes the European Union's role in global markets and also the next steps to be done to complete the monetary union to ensure its sustainability. As all of you know, the already present Spanish government has recently launched a proposal to strengthen the European Monetary Union. It must be sorry, it must be emphasized that Spain was able to leave the crisis behind because of a greater integration. And under our point of view, this should be the path for us to follow. After the crisis, we are making progresses in European Union policy that were previously unthinkable. Finally, I would like to thank all authors, especially our hosts, program members, Maria, Martis, nice to see you again, and Alexander Lehmann, who contributed to this yearbook with a very interesting analysis about the strategy for bad loans and debt restructuring. Also to Fernando Fernandez for his sincere and knowledgeable leadership of the project, and to Fundación de Estudios Financieros for the sustained quality of work through the years of collaboration. So, thank you very much, um, Javier. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to be uh, very, very, very brief. Uh, good afternoon to everybody. Thanks to Bruegel. Thanks to uh, the good team for inviting us one more year. Um, just a minute, maybe, to remember where do we come from. Uh, where do we come from in terms of time and the importance of this publication that has now turned its fifth year of existence. As far as we are concerned, there is really no publication of these characteristics, I would say not only in Spain, but also in the rest of Europe. I really don't mean to exaggerate, but we might say that we are bringing to readers on a yearly basis a compendium of what has been going on with Europe's single currency. And therefore, this fact, to our belief, is what really makes it a very high added value piece in the reader's hands every year. It all started when we asked Fernando Fernandez and Luis de Guindos uh, current ECB's Vice President, to produce uh, a work on Europe's monetary architecture, with a name along those lines which, to be honest, I cannot remember the exact title. Two years later, we talked to former ECO's President and Spanish Minister of Economy, Romag Escolano, if we could create, alongside one of Spain's most distinguished foundations, which is ECO Foundation, what is now uh, the, Euro, uh, the Euro yearbook in its current form and nature. I really want to thank Fernando's terrific job gathering and leading a very important group of prestigious economists into a set of unique articles that portray the Euro's main topics each and every year. Prestigious economists such as uh, Guntram and Maria, whom we also thank very honestly for their support. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sofia. Uh, well, I think then we should certainly uh, proceed with the, with the main uh, theme of the, of the event, which is the, the report. On, on the future of the euro. So, uh, Fernando, thank you very much for coming back uh, one more year. Uh, I've learned it's the fifth year we have this report, but it's the second year that I am, that I am participating in this, and I'm, I'm delighted to do so. I remember last year we had a very animated um, conversation about the issue, and this year I'm sure we will hope have equally animated given the events that surround us and the, what, what the future of the, of the euro entails. Um, Fernando, we will give you about 20 minutes if you could give us the, the main sure. ideas of the report. And then I am also delighted to welcome Massimo Giuliadori here for the first time at Bruegel. Massimo, thank you for coming. Massimo is a professor at uh, the University of Amsterdam of political macroeconomics and a great expert on issues that have to do with 
the EU governance and euro area fiscal policy. So thank you for agreeing to discuss here. We hope you can come back and share some of your thoughts on these general issues. Um, Ten minutes for your discussion, uh, if that's okay. Uh, Twenty minutes, uh, Fernando. Sure. Then I'm hoping that our, our audience will engage with us. Fernando. Sure. I'll shift to you, I'll you, from there is... Would you... Well, okay, probably, it's probably easier if I sit here. Uh, you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Maria. It's a pleasure to be here once again. Uh, as uh, It is the third time that we do it in Bruegel. Guntram wrote one time, sorry, Maria, we asked you from the beginning. But it is really a pleasure. Uh, it, the, the, the yearbook has many properties, uh, many... Uh, qualities, I would say, but the, the one that I like to, to underline and emphasize, and it has to do with some of the events that, uh, that have happened recently in Spain, and it tries to convey a, a sort of what I would describe as sort of a basic consensus among Spanish economists, including policymakers, academics, uh, consultants, bankers, uh, etc., on what the needs to happen to make it more sustainable. And in that sense, uh, I'm proud to have been able to include in the in the definitions of the of the uh, of the yearbook uh, personalities from all political parties in Spain, and uh, some of them have actually gone on to become governors of the Bank of Spain, like the recent uh, appointed last week, Pablo Hernández de Cos, who is the author of the of the uh, fiscal chapter of this book. But we also have in this book one of the persons that is now in the press as a potential minister of finance in the new government. Uh, of course, the new government will not be announced till the, the new government will not be announced till Wednesday, apparently. So I have no news on that front. I'm sorry, uh, but I do believe firmly that as far as the policy towards the European Union is concerned, as far as Spanish policy towards IMU, uh, we will see very little changes, if anything. I think the position is well uh, shared among most parties. We may see difference on emphasis on different issues, but the basic consensus, I think, is, it exists. And this is a little bit what I wanted to talk to you about uh, today. I want to start by thanking, of course, the, the, uh, the generosity of both the Eco Foundation and the Foundation for Financial uh, Studios Financieros for uh, uh, Financial Research, both of which have uh, helped and financed this yearbook for five consecutive years. This may seem uh, as something normal for you in Northern Europe, but let, let me tell you that in Spain I, have, I know very few uh, uh, research projects, or certainly books, that have been able to f uh, get continuous financing for five years, and as far as I know, for the next year. So it's actually it will be a sixth uh, year of the year. So this is a preview for you. Okay. So thanks to the to, to the uh, to the uh, supporters, and thank to the contributors. As I said, a, a distinguished list of economists, uh, academics, um, policymakers. Uh, the book this year is a little different from previous years, and it's a little different because it starts with a rather optimistic tone. I mean, we have had uh, previously a, a, a somehow pessimistic tone given by the differences between the things that we needed to happen uh, in order to make it more sustainable and the political climate uh, that, could, that could make those things happen. Now, as you all know much better than I do, there is a new, if I may say this, Franco-German consensus emerging in Europe, uh, which some of us find promising, albeit I should also say limited in the scope, uh, but it does give an opportunity to put in the table uh, uh, many of the issues that we have been discussing in, 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 in former years. 
Uh, it's interesting to realize when we look at, when we take a sort of three, five year perspective on IMO, that many of the things academics and, uh, have been able to bring into the agenda, into the research agenda, and at the time when they were put forward, they were considered to be impossible or unheard of or too radical. They now have become standard features of the European Monetary Union. Uh, and let's not forget the banking union when it was first formulated, it seemed like a far-fetched proposal that would never happen, and it's now part of the reality. So in the book, we are very confident that things like the European Deposit Insurance Scheme, which to some of you may seem far-fetched, politically impossible, unrealistic, a dream, it will happen much sooner than we think. And it will happen because this is one of the features that will, one of the necessary features, one of the necessary components of a stable monetary union that some people need to happen. This is just, I don't want to, we could argue about this later, but this is just an example of the, t the type of topics uh, we, we try to put on the table. We try to, as I said, that the book has two purposes. One is, uh, as Guntran said, gather stock, see what is, what is happening, uh, uh, explain to the, to the Spanish audience uh, and to the European audience, the Spanish perspective of what is happening in IMO, what has changed. And the European Monetary Union being such a lively animal, there are many, many changes every year. So that part of the book, which I always think it will be very short, it ends up being very large because there are years every time. But this is sort of the easy part. The most complicated part is the one that we try to tell what we think needs to happen. When we sort of try to put forward an agenda. Uh, and that agenda, I think it, it's, uh, it's interesting because in a way it is, as I said, a very consensual agenda in the Spanish political spectrum, as witnessed by the authors of the book and as also as an indicator of this, uh, there, there's been two significant papers uh, in, in Spain's uh, uh, economic landscape regarding IMU in the last month, one by the Minister of Finance, the position that previous uh, Minister of Finance, of Economics, had on IMU, which is the formal position of the Spanish government as of today, uh, which is very much similar to a position signed by a group of 18 uh, distinguished economists, uh, Spanish economists, one of them, by the way, is Fierrero, which is also a senior uh, research fellow here at Bruegel, and, in, and encompasses uh, economists from all different perspectives. And the main arguments are there, and the main features are the same, and this is a little bit of what I'm going to talk about. Although I will not try to summarize the book, uh, there are some issues that I do want to comment on and some ideas and proposals that uh, you could find in the book if you read it. Uh, and I want to emphasize it because they are the subject of many heated current discussions and appear prominently on the agenda of the council meeting this month, or should appear prominently in the agenda of a council meeting soon. The yearbook has, as I said, an optimistic undertone because the union leaves exciting and promising moments. From the economic point of view, uh, uh, purely economic point of view, it's obviously that the crisis is behind us, in general speaking, and, and as, as uh, Mario Draghi likes to say, we live now in an area of expansion. In fact, the question is how long can expansion continue and when will interest rates in the Eurozone change? Uh, also, the political uh, optimistic comes from a different situation, as I said before. So we have, in a way, a political and economic situation that makes things happen a real possibility. Now, in that sense, what are the questions that we address in the book? Or questions like, what is the euro still lacking to consolidate as international reserve currency and not just a regional uh, reserve currency? Or more exactly, what does the eurozone lack for the euro to be able to become an international reserve currency? How to execute it? Uh, there's an interesting article on monetary policy. 
uh, how to abandon monetary expansion. Uh, a monetary expansion that has turned the ECB into a market maker in many financial markets. A long-lasting QE that has led the ECB to adopt difficult quasi-fiscal decisions that will be even more complicated once we start raising rates and withdrawing liquidity. When will we have truly European financial institutions? What do we need to see to have European transnational mergers and acquisitions in the financial sector? What, is the, what are the real obstacles, as evidenced by one of the leading Spanish banks whose uh, head of research is the author of that chapter? And basically summarizes the difficulties and the challenges to become a major retail bank in Europe, across the European area. Uh, how to reform the single resolution mechanism? How to provide funding in, uh, uh, in a situation, funding resolution? How to solve the problems detected by uh, what appears to be probably it's, it's almost a year, exactly, I think it's exactly a year today that Banco Popular, the Spanish largest bank, was resolved. It's not exactly today, it's tomorrow. It's, it's one of these days that Banco Popular was resolved, that there's a large Spanish bank, which was the first bank uh, that was resolved using the single resolution mechanism. And there were many, uh, that was a success, as we all know. There's an interesting chapter in the, in the book on the resolution, on the general issue of res resolving banks in the, with the SRM, and in particular with the, with the, with the, um, with the Bank of Popular Instance. A, 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 a chapter has been written by a former chairman of the, uh, the Stock Exchange Commission in Spain and former Secretary of, of State. Uh, so it, it has both a, a, a policymaker uh, a approach and a practitioner approach. And it tells us what are the limitations of the current work. As, as, as the saying goes, we were lucky that we were able to find somebody interested in the Banco Popular and we didn't have to resort to the taxpayer. Uh, because otherwise we would have had a problem. Uh, no matter how confident or how uh, secure we, f we feel about the single resolution mechanism, there is still a fundamental problem. And it needs to be solved. Uh, and the, the book deals with that. Now, after these years of a regulatory tsunami, have we not reached the point where financial institutions need regulatory stability to be able to plan their strategies without constant additional demands on the capital, liquidity, the solvability? When will they be free to focus on long-term business issues like profitability, digital transformation, client empowerment? I mean, aren't we overburdening the banks with uh, uh, an ever-changing regulatory area that makes them react excessively to short-term regulatory changes and not having enough time to plan long-term strategy on what is eventually, uh, what is obviously for all of us, will be a very significantly different, radically different landscape for banking competition, not only in Europe, but in the world, with the digital transportation. Anyway, my militant optimism cannot, however, ignore the multiple problems that still exist for a completely stable EMU. Problems that can be summarized in the continuous existence of two opposing views on IMU, two views that express themselves in a false dilemma, solidarity versus austerity, risk sharing versus risk, risk reduction. A false dilemma because IMU will not be possible without a grand pact between solidarity and discipline. This yearbook is predicated to offer the main elements of that pact, a new social and political contract for Europe. The headlines, the music, is contained in the Commission's communique on June 6, 2017. A useful and timely document that has already become the economic policy agenda for the years to come in the Union. However, 
as usual, the devil is in the details. The lyrics need to be written, as some of the proposals raise many doubts and more than one false promise. Because let's go to the basics of what a permanent monetary union means. When you think, when you dream about a monetary union that is workable, what do you see? What do you see in a permanent monetary union? What would you, not only what would you like to see, but what do you see as an economist when you think about a permanent monetary union? You see capital moving freely from places, cities, regions, countries, that save to areas that spend, invest. There is no redenomination risk in the minds of any economic agent, and the real question is how to get there. But it certainly requires a European lender of last resort. Some large banks, you also see large banks that operate freely all over the union, moving capital and liquidity and selling the same financial products across the whole area. Let's call it for short a financial market union, which is a, to me a much better word than the capital markets union we tend to talk about. It also deals about equity market, uh, equity e e European Union. And we need a lot of cross equity, not only just more uh, debt uh, sharing in Europe. So let's call it the Financial Markets Union, for instance, for short. But obviously, including typically a European deposit insurance scheme. The same consumer protection, the same insolvency procedures, the same rules for seizing collaterals, so that financial institutions can truly benefit from economies of scale and can really plan on a European scale. We also see a central bank that conducts monetary policy with its own paper, with an area-wide risk-free asset. Let's call it Eurobonds for short. And therefore, we see a Euro treasury that issues those bonds, a bond that is backed by some revenue, by some form of tax revenue, but which is paid by the European taxpayer, which means that paper has joint liability and therefore implies, by definition, risk pooling. We see a fiscal interlocutor for the central bank so that there can be a meaningful dialogue between monetary and fiscal policy. Let's call it again, for short, a Minister of Finance for the Eurozone. A fiscal authority that defines and implements the fiscal stance, ensures fiscal discipline, and enforces the fiscal rules. Rules that need to be simple, transparent, non-discretional, but applicable. We see a fiscal capacity that operates as a stabilizing factor to partially offset idiosyncratic regional shocks. Typically, in any standing monetary union, it makes part of the federal budget. And it is not a special facility. And it is not a dedicated fund. It is part and parcel of the fiscal capacity of any monetary union. The recent Commission proposal of European Investment Stabilization Function falls very short of that, of that goal and does not, go, does not get even remotely close. We also see an agreed procedure on how to deal with subnational sovereign credit events. Will member states be bailed out? Or if so, under what conditions? Let's call it a European Monetary Fund to provide financial aid to states in crisis, subject to macro and or financial conditionality. A mechanism which, by the way, may or may not include some orderly restructuring mechanism if such a mechanism is possible. If the decision is not to bail out some national sovereigns, then how is the union willing to cope with the increase in inequality? Will there be at least emergency relief in the form of additional employment or social funds? Alternatively, since these are already federal, there is no need and we expect citizens to simply vote with their feet. Moreover, 
All this requires, obviously, political institutions in the union level that ensure legitimacy and democratic accountability. A union with all these features is, let's face it, the only permanent solution, the only steady state. Everything else, anything, anything short of that, will not provide stability and will be subject to recurrent crises of confidence. Not always, by the way, necessarily in the same periphery countries. Not always, necessarily, in the South. The country will be currently uh, systematically uh, exposed to episodes of, of speculative attacks and political turmoil. Everything else resembles a fixed exchange rate regime. And we know, at least some of us that have the luxury experience or nightmare of working with the Argentinian currency peg, sometimes the 90, know that any fixed currency, a fixed exchange regime is anything but stable under situa situations of stress. Now we know how unstable this is. And we certainly do not want the European Monetary Union to stay and remain <coughs> a particular form of a fixed exchange rate regime. As Paul de Grove has written, and most economists would agree, we know, I quote literally, we know for some time, we've known for some time, that financial markets always never impose the right amount of discipline. In booms, they're exuberant and condone any excess. In crisis, they become vigilantes and enforce unnecessary hardship. My conclusion of that is, no amount of financial engineering will do the trick to stabilize the Eurozone if it's not complete. Finance mar financial markets may not remain this this indulgent for, for very much longer. The ECB cannot continue to act alone, adopting policies that go beyond its responsibilities by sheer necessity, certainly not by choice. Unless the union sends a clear message of where does it want to go when it grows up, unless that message is consistent with the standard economic theory and history, and unless there is a clear roadmap and a complete timetable, we may need to think in alternative strategies. But I'm confident because we've moved a long way. We've gone too far. Most of these issues are now part of the political debate. And as it has happened with some of the issues I mentioned at the beginning, they may seem far-fetched, far they may seem a dream, or a nightmare for some. They may seem politically impossible, but we've gone so far that to go back is even more of a nightmare or more of a dream for some, but it will not work. So my, my, the, the yearbook this year is predicated on the confidence that what needs to happen will happen. And it is our responsibility as economists and policymakers to make it happen as soon as possible. Thank you. Quite so optimistic. I think that's that, that's that's great. It, it remains to see how much, of course, this can happen and uh, and avoid accidents in the, in the meantime. Oh, it won't. It won't. Be, there will be accidents. That's for sure. <laughs> well, and I mean accidents that can actually change the course from what you've described. Uh, yeah. We'll come back to that. But Massimo, can we have first your views on on, on sure. this, and then we can we can come back to a discussion. So first of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation. Sure. Uh, it was a bit of a last minute, but so I kind of I was. Uh, uh, yeah, um, given uh, this beautiful report just uh, just before the weekend, and I enjoyed kind of going through that. Some parts clearly in Spanish, I kind of skipped a little bit of the other part. But I would like to congratulate Fernando again for this kind of a uh, type of a project. It's, I wish that many more countries actually in the first place kind of do, do, do kind of raise this, this you know, kind of come out with reports like that to raise awareness. 
uh, among the population, some of a, pop, a, a topic that I would like to kind of stress later on, by the way. Yeah. I also uh, kind of would like also to apologize uh, beforehand. It's, uh, I know I, 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 I'm Italian, but also pretty kind of, I've been living, living in, in, in Holland for long enough to be quite a rat. And, uh, and maybe, you know, I'm, I might sound a little bit less optimistic than you, kind of, uh, you, you, you looked. And, uh, but let me kind of very briefly kind of summarize what, what you have. Uh, it's, uh, I think, as I was saying, it's a great report. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, there's a, a number of stimulating contributions. Uh, Maria was included as well and others. I mean, I was actually surprised by how critical okay, you were, and that's something that I shared just a few minutes ago. On the on the user contributions, you really kind of uh, you know when you don't agree, you don't agree, and you go for it. It's uh, I wish to some respect that the same kind of amount of a criticism, uh, a critical approach was also for the full picture. Uh, but uh, um, as I was saying, for the first time, if I understand correctly, that you you introduced this kind of ten. Uh, reforms, recommended reforms. I think so you've summarized them very well. They go from uh, introduction of euro bonds and the need of uh, risk-free safe assets uh, in Europe, uh, uh, simplification of fiscal rules, uh, uh, creation of, uh, of uh, Ministry of Finance at some point, completion of the banking union, uh, and so on and so on. I mean, I, I, I don't think I will go into go through the, the specific details of that because we don't have the time to do that. Maybe you know in the, in the, in the question parts there would be something on that but it's uh, it's definitely a, a very optimistic uh, kind of uh, you know, picture that you that you that you yeah, you draw in this report uh, I also have to admit I enjoyed also looking at the, at the, at the paper by the Spanish economist they kind of pretty much overlapping uh, with uh, with the report uh, recommendations and uh, maybe uh, kind of a bit more on the particular side on uh, Kind of a bit less on uh, on uh, still uh, a lot of risk sharing, a bit more on uh, risk reduction, or at least how to address that particular aspect and uh, to provide the right incentives for additional unpopular you know, reforms the country still need to go through. Uh, and uh, in a way, the, the Economist paper tried to uh, address that the particular aspect in, in a more uh, kind of direct way. And I have to admit that also. Uh, I was uh, enjoyed also this kind of uh, uh, paper by study by the Spanish government. Uh, I know this was kind of uh, uh, the view overlapping along with you yeah. or the previous government. I don't know what the new government will be and what uh, you know was going to happen, which gives you a little bit of an idea of uh, or the type of uncertainty kind of uh, that we, we're going through that and we're going through right now. And uh, maybe if I had to admit, the Spanish government uh, paper is somehow uh, even more pragmatic. Because it sets up uh, be more directly some priorities of what really can be kind of be more less you know more politically feasible. Okay, so let's say let's try to complete at least the the, the, the financial union part. Okay, and I don't hear Okay, and uh, and then on the economic integration part and the fiscal integration, which really it's very uh, politically uh, demanding, and uh, I, I think it's quite it's quite difficult. To potentially to implement. Now, again, general comments, I would say that uh, it's, uh, again, I, I had the feeling that uh, there was plenty of resharing proposals, uh, not too much on how to address the risk reduction. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you that, you know, the two might kind of be handled together, although there is not necessarily a view that everyone uh, has. And, uh, but in general, what I would say is that uh, is the is the general tone of optimism that kind of made me a little bit 
uh, worried. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, you addressed that. You, you kind of, uh, uh, you, you accept that it was very optimistic. You also accept the fact that you wrote this, uh, this report where many things didn't happen yet. But what we had over the last three months was a tragedy comedy that we had in Italy over the last uh, uh, you know, 90 days or plus of, uh, and, the, and the recent formation of government I think is a big blow uh, and, and for, in many aspects. And uh, there is one, one aspect I want to stress. I'm Italian myself, I come from the particular different area right now, but I think we cannot uh, underestimate this. this. It's one of the biggest shocks that we have. It's like the equivalent or even more than Le Pen being, you know, winning the elections in, in France. Uh, if anything, actually having these combinations of uh, two uh, completely populist parties and you. And you, you claim in your report that populism is somehow defeated. I mean, uh, it's not defeated at all. It's back on the, on the table and even more so with the interests, I would say. We got two populist parties, one of the worst possible, uh, you know, uh, in a way, yeah, characteristics. You have one side, the, 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 the kind of neo-fascist, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, populist on the, or the Lega, and the other one on the super solidarity type of, uh, you know, populist, which is come from the Five Star Movement. A coalition with a number of, uh, of, uh, uh, Promises basically, you know, they're going to put down not only the country itself but also the European project as a whole. Uh, and I think how the, the next few months are going to evolve on that are going to be pretty crucial. Not even to think about uh, shall we introduce uh, a new Ministry of Finance European level. Actually, is to really to stand on, you know, and uh, keep on going a little bit because this is really a, a big aspect. And I think. Uh, I would like to hear also at some point what your view is in that. And also I would like to hear your view on uh, what you think about how the, the new Spanish government will, will see your, your, your reports and the reports also the previous government. Um, another aspect that really I'm, I feel particularly uh, in a way uh, kind of passionate about because it's, again, it's, it's very general. Uh, there is in Europe a kind of a, 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 kind of a lack, a deficit of trust Okay, there's been there for a, lot, a very long time. Uh, a lack of trust between uh, member states. Uh, the crisis uh, kind of has, in my opinion, worsened that very, very much so. Uh, now the blow of uh, the Italian elections again. So it is a kind of, we are, we're living in, in, in an environment where there is a lack of trust between uh, the key uh, member states. And to be honest with you, I don't know how we can possibly make kind of a huge progress if a woman is a meaning kind of a transferring sovereignty on, uh, to, from, uh, from, uh, from national to, to Europe. And, uh, and another thing that really kind of, I think is we don't talk enough in my respect is just by the, what about the voters? What about the citizens? Uh, I have the impression that, you know, that this kind of technocratic approach, this Franco-German leadership, okay, leading positive, Leading the way, it's basically it's not necessarily the, the way forward. It's uh, it's uh, first of all we need uh, definitely kind of to maybe restart, to maybe make a step back and try to kind of inform, communicate to the voters, to the citizens, what Europe is all about, why we ended up being in where we are, where, the way we are, and uh, I think I would like to see a bit more kind of uh, propositions or recommendations of what we can do to kind of to make citizens kind of be on board a, a bit more and avoid kind of uh, these populist waves that we actually we're observing now in Italy. I don't know what this kind is going to lead to in, in many other countries. 
So, in some respect, I would like maybe to see if, if anything, if a recommendation I would like to, to put, put, put forward from my point of view is that maybe yeah, European leaders kind of really go for a big campaign and trying to really educate uh, you know, the, the, the voters and uh, get them closer to them, get their support, okay, let them, the voters feel a bit more closer to them, to the institution, and, and explain to them why we ended up being like that. A question very simple that might be asked, I said, would, for instance, Italy would have been better off today without the European okay, pro, uh, integration process? I mean, trying to kind of you know, quantify, try to put down a little bit, a bit of that and raise on the table, not just uh, uh, kind of uh, you know, go with the wishful thinking, just be concretely, just try to explain to people. Maybe it might take one, two, three years, doesn't matter, okay? Because honestly, I don't think big steps forward anyway out of the, of the roadmap of the commission. There would be just some compromise, more, more steps, because the crisis was a lost occasion. They were stopped completely by, in a way, by the ACB, but they were forced to do that. And uh, I don't think that basically we did a lot of progress, as you know, it should have been done, honestly, in, in that respect. So, um, I mean, I don't know whether I kind of, I can keep on for an hour here, but it's, uh, maybe I would like to, to, to leave the rest. You know. Yeah, I come back to it. But it's, I was saying that to conclude, uh, and somehow is that you know, the, the report, is, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's great. Congratulations to you on that and your, your colleagues. And uh, the recommendations are well taken, but I would say that many of them are dreams and, uh, and uh, wishful thinking. And uh, above all, given the current uh, political environment that we, we are facing, uh, I fully agree that you know, certain actions have to be there. I mean, I teach a course on the monitoring fiscal integration, and you know, what you're mentioning basically is what I teach today to the students. But it's, you know, again, as a theoretical aspect, you know, more than actually getting through fully. And uh, I, I would say that the, you know, the significant steps towards the economic and fiscal integration would be very hard in a way to implement with all with the current, uh, with the current environment. And I think uh, I, I'm, I'm super worried and pessimistic, I would say, on the, you know, on the recent events of last week with the Italian elections. Maybe uh, it's underestimated, but I mean, there is an explosive mix okay, that can really generate very negative spillovers around. Shall we go home? Well, no, 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 I think, no, 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 I'm here. Yeah, yeah, well, okay. no, you have the time, don't worry for now. <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much, Massimo, for this. And, and, and actually, I think you've deliberately also tried to take the other side here. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's great. So, I think what, what Massimo is really asking us to think about is what's the difference between optimism and a dream, right? And I think that, that that's important because, you know, you describe what needs to happen. That, that is actually, if you like, the European integration textbook. That's, uh, that, that's certainly, we all agree on this, and Massimo teaches that stuff, and it's certainly, certainly true. Then, teach it together, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, the difference is what can happen. And more importantly, if I may, what, what, what is the minimum that is to happen before we can, we can have accidents? You see, because you, you use this wonderful phrase, which was, what needs to happen will happen, which I think is, it's, 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 a, it's a great sentence. It's a little bit... Uh, um, fatalistic in some ways, because as though future happens to us uh, and we don't have a say in it. And I think, I think we do have a say in it, and it's important that we direct it in, 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 in directions that are sustainable. Um, and if we all agree that the euro is, is a good thing, and the citizens agree that the euro is a good thing, or Europe is a good thing, then we need to make sure that we understand that it is a euro thing. Um, so, you know, what do you mean well, what needs to happen will happen? What is the minimum that we need to do in order for this to be sustained? Yeah, if, if... <laughs> Okay, let, let, me, let me 
take two, two or three minutes to answer the question, you know, not to, to give a, a straight answer even more. Uh, because I think it is indeed a fundamental question. And, and let me just take this opportunity to, to thank Massimo, because as, as he said, I mean, he was called to comment on the book at the very last, I should have said this from the beginning, sorry, Massimo, at the very last moment uh, on Friday. And, and it's great that he even took the time to read the book, which is part of it is in Spanish, so it, it is a great effort. And I, and I am really thankful for you to, to this, and I should have said this from the beginning, Massimo. Uh, but you also pointed uh, to more or less to the same kind of thing. You know, this is a very nice dream. Uh, well, let me say, okay, I, 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 I stress the idea that I'm optimistic, but I also, you read the book, and you've read it, obviously, I also say, well, if this is a dream, then we may have to start thinking about exit strategies. Because this, as it is today, will not be sustainable. And I think one of the, there are two, there are two levels of the debate here. There's the technical debate and the political debate. And in the political debate, we can go on and on discussing what we think of that. But I think that we should have clear in our minds from the technical debate point of view what needs to happen to make a monetary union sustainable. Now, we can say, okay, we have the luxury of having markets that will condone anything we do for the next X number of years. Uh, we have the luxury of having an economy that is growing, uh, a luxury of having a beautiful e European Central Bank that will act as the main market maker for as long as it takes, for, for as long as it's necessary. But we know this is not true. We know that at some point, the markets will not become condoned. Uh, the ECB will not be able to continue doing what it does. Uh, the economy will create unemployment. Uh, and unless we have a an institutional architecture, and I come back to the, to the first uh, title of the first book that, uh, study that we did on the Euro, unless we have an institutional architecture that is capable to sustain the bad times, we will have a problem. But what's more worrisome to me, and it's the eternal example, I mean, why is it that we still have countries that find necessary to question that it, could, it was better to be out? Essentially, you know, we, we start being nice politically speaking, and we, we face the issue directly. There are temptations in every country, there are political parties in every country. Sometimes in some countries they actually are in power, they get to the government, that think that being out is better than being in. Now, why does that happen? And you said, you took, if you allow me, the, the, the sort of the, the easy political answer, let's educate the people. I think that it is because we don't do what we need to be done. Because we're trying to sell a car that cannot work. And people realize. Let me give you an example of what I mean. How long do you think it will be before somebody will rebel to the idea that the bank is resolved under European rules by a decision taken by European institution, but then it's paid by local taxpayer? That cannot happen. I mean, it's only natural that people revolt to this. But this is what we have now, and this cannot work. How is it that a country when it's facing an idiosyncratic shock of whatever nature, uh, it has to rely on a, of a, on a transfer, sorry, not on a transfer, on a grant that has to be paid, subject to conditionality, that then imposes harsh fiscal discipline on a country that needs to have a fiscal expansion? We have a problem in the institutional architecture. So the point I'm making is what we have will not work, and we know it. So either we start saying, you know, you know what, it was a bad idea. Let's think about how we undo what we are. Or we start facing the political reality to be in sync, uh, in sync with the economic realities of a monetary union. And so what would need to happen? What needs to happen? What is the minimum? The minimum is that we understand from a technical point of view where we need to be. And it surprises me that there are people in a technical 
point of view. There's still discussed the need for a eurobond, for instance. I mean, we can say this is politically unfeasible, but we cannot say that a monetary union can function without a euro area risk-free asset. And we can call it whatever. I don't care whether we call it eurobond or Fernandez. That, that I'm not worried about. Uh, but what I do need, or what I do know, is that we need that. You know, we need a central bank that when it intervenes in the market, it does it with its own paper. It doesn't have to take a, a fiscal decision or whether to help, the, the help or punish the Italian government, just for monetary policy operations. That cannot happen. It is not sustainable. So, you know, the, 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 as an economist, what I like to emphasize is, you know, we always talk about the opportunity cost. You know, and, and, and one of the things that, when I teach economics 101, the first thing I tell my students is, you know, the world, this is not about deciding how you want to do the world. It's about telling you what the cost of every decision is. If you do this, this is what it will cost you. Uh, it's not a free lunch. You know, it's about allocating scarce resources. You know, the fundamental thing. But the same thing with the euro. It's about what needs to happen if we don't want to be at the whim of financial markets. And we are at the whim of financial markets. And that is a problem. We can, we can be very confident that financial markets are very understanding. And they think that Europe is a very sacred area that has to be protected. But listen, we have had, in 2010, 2012, a typical emerging market crisis of lack of confidence and capital drought. This is what the Spanish economy suffered in 2010. It was a typical emerging market Argentinian-style crisis, typically of a fixed exchange rate regime which did not have the institutions to deal with that crisis. And we're now, you know what we're coming up with? With something called the European Monetary Fund that resembles as close as possible to the IMF. You know, it's an external institution that comes in and tells us what to do with a strong conditionality attached, it cannot work. It just simply cannot work. I mean, I'm sorry for, for Chancellor America, I'm sorry to say this so bluntly. And I've worked at the fund six years, so I know what I'm talking about. I've done these adjustment programs. Uh, and is, is this what we really want? You know, we want to have an external agency to the union that comes to tell us what we need to do in exchange for some money? And do we expect the citizens to like this and to stay in the union? No, that cannot happen. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, it's not a dream. It's a reality because my problem is what is the opportunity cost? The opportunity cost of many. The opportunity cost that we'll have more and more increasingly political parties in Europe, not only in the South, but also in the North, starting to question, what is this about? Do we do the right thing? Shouldn't we contemplate how to get out of this? And this is really, to me, a nightmare. Not only from an economic point of view, but also from a political point of view. Because what we have at stake here is the, not only the economic, but the political architecture that Europe has given itself in a very problematic 20th century, which you do not want to repeat. And I don't want to sound very, I mean, you know, I don't want to go from the optimistic to the catastrophic uh, point of view, but I think we tend to, we tend to act as if nothing has happened, and, and, and something very fundamental happened in Italy. But let me just say, and, and I stop here because I don't want to take too much time, I want other people have a chance to say, but something very fundamental happened in Italy that we, we should not forget, but it also happened in, in, in Greece before. You know, Political parties play the euro role the, against the anti-euro role to get in government. And once they're in government, they think that outside the euro is even colder. And they, they, they try to manage a way in without being really noticed by their own voters. That's what the Greek government did. Sorry, Maria. But this is essentially what the Greek the Cerebral government did. You know, I, I run an anti-euro platform, and then I'm in the government. I realized that, you know, this is it. It's much better to be here. So how do I convince my voters that they need to be here? This is what the Italian government is going to do. 
And this is what the Spanish government may, may feel tempted to do. But the fact is that they all know that outside it's even colder. So why do we, if we have external institutions tell us what to do, then this role will be even more so. We will have more and more governments that will run an anti-Europe anti campaign. So let's have a Eurozone political, and I under, you know, one of the things that I forget to mention, but it was obvious in the paper, all what I'm saying amounts to a new treaty. But is there anybody really in this room that believes that we can, that the European Monetary Union can be sustainable without a new treaty? Is there anybody really seriously, technically, thinks that we do not need a new Maastricht treaty? Now, another story is for a politician, when the Minister of Finance comes up here and tells you what to do, of course he doesn't want to commit suicide, or political suicide. Of course he's not going to say we need a treaty. But we all know that we need a treaty. So unless we create a public opinion that we need a new treaty, we'll never have a new treaty. And then we'll have a new treaty by default, meaning this invention is going to fall. Sorry to be so blunt again. I mean, I certainly see what uh, I certainly see this, but isn't there a little bit of an attempt to square a circle here? Because I mean, I think we we know what to do on the economic side, but you also agree that the politics is, are, are just not there yet, there or not there yet, depending on which side on the optimism spectrum you want to take. But but then, how do you square that circle? I mean, how do you how do you how do you make sure that the politics and the e and the economic needs which you just described you know, are in sync? You know, we've always done it, and that's what I try to avoid. We've always Please. done it for a big crisis. I mean, the banking, the idea to have a single supervisory institution for all banks in Europe was impossible. Unless what? Unless almost all European banks collapsed, or many European banks had significant problems. They put it uh, uh, less dramatic. You know, we had a, a serious banking crisis. Then we realized that we need a European uh, supervisory mechanism. Let's call it a European Central Bank that does supervision, right? But this, are we expecting? The same thing to happen? Do we need a huge, another big crisis to have a European deposit insurance mechanism? Because it is obvious that unless we have a European deposit insurance mechanism, the euro is not the same asset being deposited on a very lousy Italian bank, or very, let me put it more politically elegant, on a very insolvent, in, not profitable, poorly run German bank. That asset will be an asset of, a, it is today an asset of a better quality than the same euro deposit in a very good, profitable, solvent, liquid, Spanish bank. So anytime we have a crisis, all that money will go to our last German bank. Is this what, how do we really think that the, the euro area can be sustainable? So yes, as a minimum, we need immediately European deposit insurance mechanism. Just to make sure that the euro is the same asset regardless of the nationality of the bank in which it is deposited. And then we can start talking about how the bank is run, managed, uh, profitable, etc. But unless that, we cannot have fair competition, we cannot have a fair level playing field if the institutions are worth what the country of origin is worth. So to, that's the main one. Uh, it'll be on the... Okay. It'll be on the, on the, on the side of, uh, again, the, the Italian case that you're taking. And uh, I mean, I, I very much agree that current government will have a reality check uh, very soon and uh, Mark has already given a little bit some inputs uh, although they're using it as a kind of uh, you know they come down as soon as we took place it took office uh, again the future is uh, you know comes along and and, uh, and they will uh, have a, I was saying a reality check on that I think something that I would like this to stress about, for example, what this particular crisis, or maybe the last few years, also some some, some countries are also uh, generated, 
is that, first of all, let's put it this way, it is, the report is all about economic integration, financial integration, fiscal integration, but it's also true that a lot of what we see now in terms of politics in, in Italy also has to do partly with the euro, but mostly, okay, with other parts that's nothing to do with the euro, okay, there is a war against immigration, okay, uh, Italy has been completely left alone, so these are other, other aspects, in a way it cannot be kind of left aside, it's something that should be in there. And also, I would like to stress that, uh, the, the, I mean, the fundamental problems, okay, and there is a way, how can we reduce the risk again, here again, of, of Italy, are still there, fully, and actually, I see even worse in, in, in the next few years, because the, the debt is still high, okay, Italy went through a huge amount of, uh, of uh, austerity, running primary surpluses, again, completely offset by, you know, servicing debt, and, uh, and Italians are kind of, uh, you know, suffering from that. Uh, they have to go through some important structural reforms that actually even the current politician wants to maybe revert or maybe abolish. But uh, it's uh, one of the big aspects is the growth aspect. And what we have we always seen in Italy, okay, or also in Greece, is a huge brain drainage. Drain, basically, I think it's also huge in terms of what's going to happen in the next few years in terms of growth. And, and, and how can we solve that? How, and how do we address the fact that countries that are poor become poorer, okay, and countries that are richer become richer? I mean, how can we really reach a compromise and address this? And uh, this is something that should be also somehow in the, in the, in the agenda fully, and I really don't, uh, don't, don't see too much in that currently. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Marcio. Well, let's bring If we can collect a few questions and come back to the panel. Antonio is the first. Let me just put this on for you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, definitely, Fernando, you have to come more often because <laughs> to bring uh, your, your message and your optimism. I want to pick up on one of your comments about um, the difference in the in the German bank. Versus, versus uh, the deposit of, uh, of another uh, European in another well-run uh, European bank. It has more, I mean, it is important, it's critical, it's very, it's crucial, um, but it has another implication also that has more to do with productivity, with employment, with so on and so forth, because at the end, this reflects also the different, the different in terms of cost of funding for Banks, the European uh, bank in Spain uh, has uh, a more uh, higher uh, risk premium to pay just for just for being in Spain, yeah. and it has another implication in terms of the cost of funding for their SMEs and for so on and so forth, and the way in which the SMEs compete uh, in the European or international level. So it is not only a matter important on the security. Uh, of the safety of, of this it is also it has an implication in terms of the competitiveness of the of the semis and the and the industrial uh, <coughs> network of the country can we collect the questions that came with you uh, this is yours here and natasha yeah <coughs> thank you it should be on actually right yeah uh, my, my question is going to be very specific for once. It's going to be with Banco Popular. Uh, we know, you know, 
what happens. You know, it's a big litigation right now, the European, uh, European Court, which will be the first very important test of this new edifice. But I'd like to, to know from your side, since I heard you've got a contribution there, what are your first somehow uh, remarks or observations regarding the functioning, you know, of the system, the SRM, you know, SRB and so on? if there are any or other things regarding probably the role of the ECB and so on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, a question there, Natasha, and then have, we have a second round, Javier, we come back. Thank you. I would like to thank both the panelists for the very inspiring uh, remarks and uh, presentations. And I would like to have your views on this uh, European investment stabilization tool. Do you think it's a good step towards the monetary stability? Thank you. Th Thank you very much. Well, well, one more question then here, and then we'll come back to the others. Well, I want to con congratulate the panelists and uh, and Bruegel for setting up this uh, um, debate. But my question is um, on conditionality, because uh, I think that we might agree or disagree on the edits, but the thing is, under which circumstances uh, edits should be uh, possible and should be feasible. And my question is on the, um, well, it seems that there is a, a sort of, uh, well, an impossible mission to reconcile uh, risk sharing with risk reduction. So who, which comes first and under which conditions? And I think that this is, at the end of the day, the, uh, the underlying uh, ball uh, issue is trust in some extent. So how we can get trust in this in this journey, because it seems that no one wants to you know to start this journey without having a pre-agreement on where we are heading to, how we will uh, get there, and under which uh, sort of uh, circumstances or conditions. So first of all, in my view, I think that provided that probably all agree on doing this journey, but maybe we have to. Um, Agree first how we are going this journey, who are coming along in this journey, when we when do we when do we expect to arrive to the final destination, or whether that could be several intermediate just uh, steps, uh, so stops. So those things probably have to be uh, well uh, devised, well clarified, and dispel those um, you know part of the you know of the. Um, of the people traveling in this in this um, bus, let me put it like this, who might be not really uh, agree on where to go and how to go. So conditionality, in my view, is very, very important and should be addressed in a very simple way, not very complicated, because always there will be this sort of uh, misfeeling between north, south, east, west. So something simple, feasible, and, and easy to deliver in a reasonable time frame without having, before having a, a crisis which could, uh, uh, well, uh, stress this, this lack of yeah. eddies and, and the like. Thank you very much, Javier. Let's just uh, come, back to the, come back to the panelists. And, I mean, this issue of trust keeps coming back, right? And, and, and please. No, no I mean, I mean the, 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 the issue of trust is... is um, yeah, right. I mean, it keeps going back for, for, for good reasons, but it is a non-solvable question. I mean, 
Did we have trust in 58 when the Rome was established, or did we build trust by moving forward with the Rome? So my, my answer to this issue of trust is, do we build trust by, as we have always done in the European, in the construction of the European Union, by interrelating each other, by creating uh, uh, assets and liabilities in economic terms that are intertwined, or do we expect it to be created by the force of nature. I mean, the only way I think we can build trust is by getting together and establishing interconnections and sharing things. So although, you know, and there's no answer to this now. I'm not a political expert, I don't know how you build trust, but certainly I do think that if you look back at the construction of Europe, it's all about sharing interests and having common interests. And making sure that what happens to you affects me, and therefore how we share the cost. And that's the whole structure. We would do, we need to do this with the European deposit, with EDIS? Yeah, sure. Now, what do I lack in EDIS? What is the conditionality, to be very specific? Uh, first of all, uh, there was an initial proposal by the Commission, which had three different steps. Uh, in, the, for, in the last uh, uh, proposal, the, 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 the end step has disappeared. So it seems like we will leave it, it eternally on a system of co-insurance, and then we, will be, we will never get to the, the step of actually mutual insurance. Now that cannot work, simply cannot work. So uh, at least the minimum conditionality, let's get back to have that step of mutual insurance. I don't care whether it's 215, 225, or 220. That I'm not worried about. Remember, we decided to start Euro uh, to, to, to set in motion the Euro and to have uh, the common currency in 1992, and we only have it as a reality in, in 1999. So it took seven years, but the markets knew seven years in ahead what the time frame was. So I think we should keep in mind that it was important to have a clear roadmap, to clear time frame. It's not that important what happens today or in two years' time, as long as there's an agreement that will happen. But we do need to have it's a clear roadmap of having this mutual uh, insurance in the process. Now, uh, on conditionality, it brings back an issue that you mentioned, risk sharing versus risk reduction, that the book is too much on risk sharing. I, 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 I have probably talked too much about risk sharing because this is the issue in whenever I travel north, let's put it this way. Uh, but there's a lot of risk, risk reduction in the paper, and in fact, your paper is about risk reduction. Um, what I only say in this, in this uh, chapter on risk reduction is uh, let's not Okay, let's be serious about risk reduction. Risk reduction means, at some point, we talk about risk reduction in banks' balance sheets, you know, to, to, to talk about technical things. We really want to talk about risk reduction in balance sheets, in banks' balance sheets, we're talking about two things. Either we get new capital, so the current capital of the banks takes the loss, and therefore we're actually saying we need another round of bank crisis. Second, how are we going to convince the new capital to get into the banks if we don't have profitable, solvent, or European-scale banks? Is investing in equity in banks, in capital in banks, a reasonable investment in the current scenario in Europe with all the uncertainties surrounding the monetary union? And third, are we serious that we can do the amount of risk reduction that needs to happen in some balance sheet in some banks without public capital? Do you remember what's happened in Italy, and I hope this is not, this, is this, 
Well, let me put it this way. Uh, what has happened in many countries in Europe, and it hasn't happened in some other countries, and may have something to do with the difficulties, is that some countries decided to put public capital in their banks in 2010 and got out of that very fast. Some other countries, like Spain, dragged their feet and went all the way to 2012 and 2014 to have to put their, their, their public capital in the banks. But they did it in 2014, and they by now they're pretty much safe, and the banks are pretty solvent. Some other countries did, never did it, neither in 2010 or 2014, and now they have to think about it now. And now we tell them, no, you can't do it. We've done it because we're much smarter than you. We did it very soon, and now you have to get that. That cannot work. So this idea that we can have risk reduction in some countries' banks' balance sheets without public capital, it will not happen. I mean, we can discuss as much as we want about it, but it won't happen. Second, what we have learned in this reduction in bank balance sheets, we need for these specialized investment funds, so-called distressed funds, to have to play a very active role in this market. But then we have to have legislation that allows this distress for them. And this is something that some countries may need to rethink twice. We need to have a legal environment that makes attractive for these distressed funds to buy assets at a price that is way below uh, what somebody thinks they are worth. Okay. Third, we need to have very active uh, uh, asset management companies that are state owned. Are they European on a scale? Probably not. And you would hear Bruegel and you yourself may have worked a lot with, on this issue, and then I have not much technical to that. But what I mean is, there's a lot of risk reduction, but let's face it, risk reduction is about public capital. It will not happen at the level that we're envisaging in some uh, uh, banks' environment unless we really want to confront that issue. Well, this, that's, that's my view. Uh, quickly on Banco Popular, the lessons are, are, are in the book here. There are three lessons to it. One is we need to make sure that the, and I know this may sound very contentious uh, from a legal point of view, but we need to make sure that the authorities in resolution are immune from any legal prosecution, except for, obviously, fraud or, what I, what I mean is, you know, you, we cannot have a system in which those in charge of taking the decision are only worried about what they will be their own personal legal repercussion. So one thing that is important is to make sure that whatever system we have, the decisions are taken without further due. And the, the national and the, and the European supervisors. But not the national supervisors. Some of the national supervisors may, well, you know, this, this has been, but, but yeah, but we need to make sure that that happens. That's important, you know. Uh, and as, as, as the, the book says, you know, we need to then understand that we need an administrative decision, an administrative authority that takes those decisions. It cannot be the legal judiciary, nor the traditional judiciary system, because the timing is what it is. We are actually dealing with traditional shareholder rights that are expropriated, to, to, to use strong words, but real words, at some point in time. And this is a decision that is taken under imperfect competition, in the pressure of time, before a, a major crisis happens. We cannot expect then to have that decision to be uh, rethought 18 months later, with the luxury of having had 18 months to study the issue. Because people take decisions on real time, based on the information that they have at the time, and with the alternatives that exist at the time. So that's one to be a very important point. Second important point, we need liquidity. 
We need liquidity in resolution. We cannot just count on somebody coming up and buying a bank for you one euro or whatever, taking on the liabilities, you know? But the, the, the price is relevant. Because what, happened, what would have happened in the Banco Popular if nobody was interested? Have we closed it? Do you think is it feasible? It would, not be, it would not have called for a systemic crisis again if the Spanish authorities or the European authorities decided that they would have to close Banco Popular because there were no alternatives except taking it over in the public sector and they couldn't do that. So we need to contemplate the possibility that at some time the public sector has to take over temporarily some banks, as it has happened in every single banking crisis up to now, and as it will continue to happen in any single banking crisis all over the world, except maybe the Eurozone, we insist on being you know, so strict with these uh, uh, initially rules that we have given ourselves. So this is the second point uh, that's important. And the third point, obviously, is because of that, because we need to have amount, we need to have, uh, the, in my view, the single resolution mechanism, the fund, to be able to issue debt on its own terms. It has to, be, it has to have the ability to finance whatever money they need to resolve a bank. And this has to be a decision taken by the single resolution fund in itself. It cannot be subject to a political decision. Because the single resolution fund cannot say, now, wait a minute, guys. Uh, hold on on this bank for 15 days because I have to go and consult to the ministers of finance of the countries and then go to the parliament of different countries to make sure that, they can, that I'm allowed to issue debt and then once I have the money, I tell you what I would do with that bank. That cannot work. So, uh, you know, the, 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 it has to be an automatic mechanism. These are the three lessons that, that we draw on that issue on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the paper. And I think I've talked to all of them. Oh, no, there was the issue of... Uh, uh, did I? I don't think I've... You, you had a question on... On the European investment... Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. On the European investment stabilization function. I already mentioned, I think it's way far from what I think we need. Just at least... The, okay, there are three problems with it, the way I say it. One, the amount is not enough. Uh, second, most important than the amount. Uh, it, it is, it is a, a, a credit, not a grant. Uh, so, you know, we will give the country in need a credit that will have to be either repaid or then the issue about restructuring that debt will come up. So the problem is we still have, you know, the debt. Uh, so I think that is a problem. Uh, and three, it is conditioned on uh, a political decision that may take very long. So I am very much in favor of a Euro budget uh, that is that has that fiscal capacity in house, uh, uh, which is then part and parcel of a current fiscal policy. Now, what does any monetary union do when a certain area has a specific shock? They fund it. They bring in money, or we let the people go out. Now, how is the how does the U.S. or Brazil uh, deal with with uh, regional shocks? What, what does the budget do? There is a fiscal capacity that immediately brings in money or people leave. So now in Europe, we think we can have none of those. We don't want people to leave, but we don't want to bring in money. And how big should that be? As big as it's necessary. I don't know. But certainly, as big as it's necessary, as big as it's politically feasible. The, 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 the money, let me say this, it's not so much 
about how much, but how much can it raise if need be? Yeah. So I think the question is, will the fund have the ability to, 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 to issue debt yeah. to leverage? Yes, it should. That's much more important than whether it's 50 billion or, or 20 billion. Massimo, you're welcome. Just very quickly, I think it's, uh, you know, you're, you're, so it's true uh, on the aspect of uh, risk, risk reduction on the bank side, there is clearly a section on that, and your, your proposition kind of makes perfectly sense. And I also hope that we don't need another you know, banking crisis to kind of to wake up again from that, because I don't think we survive that for sure. But then picking up on the, on the, what, or the question of that, is that, okay, here there is, a, again, trade-off, a simultaneous game here between... Uh, uh, solidarity and uh, you know resharing on one side and uh, kind of reduction uh, of risk on, on the other side. I mean, again, everything goes back to the to the trust aspect. Okay, your your proposition it makes perfectly sense, but and, uh, but I still haven't kind of really understood very clearly how really tomorrow, okay, we may show that Germany or other countries are going to basically uh, you know uh, buy this particular aspect. Okay, uh, and uh, and and uh, which, of which conditionality? Conditionality. I mean, the, the level of trust that we have right now, it's is is clearly it's um, it's, it's, it's extremely low, and uh, and uh, I, I don't know how we can possibly kind of implement it, kind of. And this, I want to kind of challenge you again on on that particular aspect. No, let, let me bring another elephant in the room, and this is uh, fiscal sovereignty, uh, because the book clearly makes the point that at some point countries will need to render fiscal sovereignty sure. to the European authorities. Sure. So that's how, they, how this But when and can, how? That, that is, this is where the trust can happen. That this is how we can build trust. We can build trust. This is what the risk, risk reduction is about. I can, I mean, I can understand, and, and I've been uh, severely criticized in Spain for being too much pro-German uh, when I say this, to, to put it in, 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 in European terms. But I do understand clearly that unless we, can, we are sure that the fiscal rules are met, are implemented, and countries that do not implement those rules are subject to a loss of sovereignty, uh, and then the rules are implemented by somebody else, a European authority, then they can understand the, the, the reluctance to move forward with risk sharing. So this is what a grand pact that I'm talking about is about. It's about, you know, it's about fiscal prudence or discipline or whatever you want to call it, orthodoxy, in exchange for risk mutualization in financial area. Uh, and I really think that when you think about it, it's the only way out of this statement. You know, what is a possible pact, uh, a possible way to build trust? You know, we commit, we, uh, an indefinite we, we commit to fiscal discipline, so much so that we commit to the idea that there will be, uh, not sanctions, that doesn't work, but there will be transfer of sovereignty rendering of sovereignty at some point if some rules are not met, in exchange for making sure that we have risk sharing and the financial system works as it needs to work in any stable, long-lasting monetary union. And I think this is a pact that can be done. And, and, and to be honest, uh, if this has always, by the way, there has always been the debate between, between the French and the German. So I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the, the, um, the Netherlands and Spain. I'm talking about actually this, this grand pact between fiscal and, and, and monetary, it's a Franco-German pact to begin with. Uh, and this is another elephant in the room, by the way, that needs to be put on the table. But unless we come up now, uh, we can, and again, 
you know, we, we as economists, we, we, have, we as economists, and particularly academic uh, economists, have a problem that we can discuss for years on the quality of fiscal rules. And we will never agree on what a perfect fiscal rule is. I'm not so worried about coming out with a perfect fiscal rule. I want a, a fiscal rule that works. And to me, a fiscal rule that works in the current environment of the monetary union is a fiscal rule that has three uh, properties. One, that is as simple as possible so that any citizen anywhere in Europe can understand. Second, it's a fiscal rule that the one that is not meeting it knows that it's not meeting it and therefore cannot argue that there has been any problem with the implementation of the rule. And three, it's a fiscal rule that when you don't meet, something happens. And we all know in advance what happens. And we all agree in advance what happens. And these are the only three properties that are working with fiscal Now, these are strong properties. Mind you, I'm very full aware of what I'm saying. But I don't care whether my personal liking and expenditure rule adjusted to the debt level. But that, I, mean, I would be willing to negotiate on that if we keep the three principles of the rules. Simple, enforceable, and with conditions known in advance. Okay, let's take another round of questions. There's one question there. Oh, and uh, yeah. Okay, there's two at the back. Okay, sorry, can you tell us who you are? Uh, yeah, this is Claudio from El País, the Spanish Daily. I want to ask about another another elephant in the room, which is for me the the Spanish new government. And I want to ask you, uh, what do you expect in terms of economic policy? Uh, on this um, Pedro Sanchez, and, and what level of compromise do you expect with European rules, with European fiscal rules, given the fact that during the last years the, the government of Rajoy has failed to achieve the, the fiscal goals, and, and we have in the pipeline an increase in the pensions and a, and a tax reduction? Thank you. Let's go to Johan Adriana here at the front. Thank you very much for, these, uh, for this very good uh, discussion so far. So if you were thinking about passing on sovereignty and fiscal policy and think that is crucial, don't you, uh, don't you think that uh, this actually will drive Europe apart? And one important concept in the treaty is subsidiarity so that local people can decide about local policies. If you take that away and policies, for instance, fiscal policy is made from a central authority whoever that will be and whoever will dominate that, don't you think that actually will drive people away from Europe rather than towards Europe? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm from the Netherlands and um, um, we've had a similar exercise on the EMU in the future. And the discussion that we've, we had was very much focused on uh, risk sharing but then in relation to the, the market mechanism because that is regarded in the Netherlands as the instrument for risk sharing. Um, as I haven't read the book and I apologize for that. Uh, to what extent is the market mechanism built in, into your book project or to what extent can we actually rely much more on the market mechanism to make sure that uh, government debts uh, have their own risks shared and uh, uh, savers know the, 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 the risks of their savings, etc., etc. To what extent is that incorporated in your uh, book project? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There's two questions there. Two last questions. One there, one at the front. Sorry, Sorry we're getting to you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so from the Minister for Finance, Malta, uh, Nikola Andreevich. 
Um, so I want to ask, basically, um, when it comes to the SRF, the common backstop and so on, liquidity and resolution, we saw that in Banco Popular, in, in, in medium-sized GSIBs and even larger, um, a lot of money is required, a lot of money is required and fast, right? Um, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on where this money can come from? If it's going to come from the SM, from the member states, um, how can this um, be raised in, in such a short period of time? And we also see that even after the money is provided, let's say, um, there is still that market stigma. How are we going to reestablish confidence in the banks um, for them to actually recover completely in the long run and remain sustainable? Thank you. Thank you very much. And one last question. This will wait, I think. Yes, hello. I'm David Garcia from the Union of European Federalists, the Spinelli Group. Uh, first thing, I, I wanted to share with Fernando Fernandez the optimism, the enthusiasm with which your publication has been received in our, in our movements. Um, but I, and one of the things that we liked is the fact that you have a chapter about the political structure of the year, which is something that uh, is rare in this kind of uh, economic publications, usually something which is ignored, omitted. And that's my question. Are, are, aren't we meeting the horses before the cut when we make all these proposals which are essential, they're fundamental for the economic and monetary union and they need to be carried out. But isn't there a much deeper fundamental flaw in the structure of the economic and monetary union, which is that we're using institutions which are meant to be democratic, but for the use of a, just a single market. And now we want to use those institutions for something which is much deeper in terms of democracy, in terms of social interconnection between citizens. When we see uh, that in Germany, uh, the Verfassungsgericht doesn't recognize the ECJ as a Supreme Court or the European Parliament as a real parliament, that still Merkel yesterday uh, said that the, economic money, uh, the European Monetary Fund won't be uh, accountable to the European Commission, let alone to the European Parliament, but to national parliaments. Isn't there, sh shouldn't we first and foremost um, build the reputation of the European democratic uh, institutions in order to help citizens or to make citizens embrace this project? Thank you. Very, very important question. Fernando. Okay, on the, on the local question on Spanish politics, <laughs> uh, there actually were two questions. Uh, one, the, the European one, I, I sincerely do not think there will be any major significant differences in EU policy in the new government. Uh, I think uh, this is based both on the uh, track record of socialist governments in Spain uh, they have been basically very much pro-European and, and, and basically, uh, and they've, uh, yeah, let, let me describe, I, I, I describe the, Europe, the, the fiscal policy in Spain vis-a-vis -vis Europe to be one of loose compliance, meaning we will never meet the fiscal target that is set, but we'll never get too far away to be punched for that. So we'll take the leverage and the room of maneuver that is given to us uh, you know, if it is 3 plus or minus 0.5, then it will be 3.5. If it is 3 plus or minus 0.1, then it will only be 3.1. So it's up actually to how stringent the, the implementation of the rule is at the European level that the government, and, and this has happened with the government and will happen with the socialist government. So in that sense, 
I don't, I, I don't see any, I don't respect any significant change on that part. On general economic policy in Spain, you mentioned two of the big issues, pensions and tax reform. I could include a third one, uh, the uh, system of funding for the different regions, the, the, uh, uh, the, the funding of the regions, the mechanism, which is one of the very Now, there, uh, first of all, this, this is just my personal view. I mean, I have no, we have no governor, we have no minister. And I do think the minister will be important. But by, by you know, being old enough to have seen governments of all sorts and knowing many of the, of the people that are quoted in, in your paper and others as potential ministers, I think the prime minister, Sanchez, has a problem. He will have a coalition government between what he wants to do and what he knows he has to do. Now, how that coalition will resolve uh, will probably have to do with how long he wants to stay in office. If he does what he needs to do, he can stay two years, but it won't make any difference. Uh, if he does what he feels to do, or has said he will do, then he won't last till the end of this year, uh, and it will make a significant difference in the Spanish uh, economy and financial markets. But that's, again, a personal view on it. And I'm not sure I want to be quoted on that one, by the way, in Spanish <laughs> press. <laughs> but if, uh, if indeed it, it is my very personal view, it doesn't uh, uh, represent any of the institutions that, that are in the book in any way, and certainly not the institutions I'm affiliated with either in Spain. So second point, um, which was solidarity? Which was the second question, Johan, on the... Oh, subsidiarity. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand why I'm reading. <laughs> subsidiarity um, and fiscal. Now, I don't, I don't see how you can do subsidiarity uh, in fiscal policy if you mean by that that a country can, do that, can, can reach the, 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 the deficit level that it wants to. I think subsidiarity comes at the point the way I say it is, okay, you have this rule that you have to meet. The way you meet it is your problem. It's your decision, it's your prerogative, it's your sovereignty. But I want 3%. And 3% is 3%. Whether you do it by increasing taxes, reducing expenditure, by, that's your problem. That's your decision, that is prerogative. Uh, but the 3% is my problem. So you don't meet the 3%, I'll tell you how to meet 3%. If you do it on your own, I have nothing to do with it. That's how I envisage subsidiarity in fiscal policy. Now, if you understand by subsidiarity that I can run any fiscal policy that is not in consistency with the euro area, fiscal policy of objectives, then I don't buy it. Then I don't think we can have that type of subsidiarity. Now, the, the, the market mechanism rich sharing, uh, so that you mentioned over there. Uh, well, I, was, I, I tended to read what you were saying until the, your very last question where you invoke public debt, I think. And, and let me explain what I mean. If what you mean by, by the market mechanism having a much more role in risk sharing within the monetary union. I would fully agree with that, and that's why I insist we need to have a financial markets union. That's why I think one way to share risk is through sharing equity. One way to share risk is through having European banks or European companies, well, sorry, where the equity is distributed you know, to the point where nobody knows uh, which nationality owns which company. Uh, regardless of where it has to have or it happens to have the, the, the headquarters, okay? So in that sense, yes. Uh, if you're talking about market uh, mechanism, uh, 
uh, in the sense that, uh, as we see in any other stable financial union, the, the, the response to idiosyncratic shocks is basically done through the financial sector, the private financial sector. Uh, I fully agree. The problem is in the European Monetary Union, why is it that we now have a higher level of fragmentation or a smaller level of fiscal integration in the Eurozone that we had prior to 2010, despite the fact that we have moved to the banking union? So there's an element of, of uh, 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 renationalization of financial policies that we have to address. And this is a private issue, not a uh, political issue. Now, so everything we can do to that, I fully agree, is the way to go, and it's, it's a precondition, and there are ways and things in the paper uh, uh, that talk about that. Uh, if we're talking about, and this is a point I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet, about this idea of penalizing the holdings of sovereign debt in balance sheet of the banks, that is absurd. I see, I know of no single jurisdiction in the world that penalizes its own holding of sovereign debt, unless we have come to the conclusion that we are, we are looking at sovereign debt of different member states as either being in default, by definition, by legal decision, or as being non-sovereign, being subnational. Now, this is the issue that I mentioned in my initial uh, uh, words. The union has to decide, once we have a sovereign for the euro area, whether the today's sovereign paper government paper of the different member states, is it still sovereign or is it subnational? And what to do with the subnational paper? Whether we bail it out uh, or whether, whether we let it default. Now, my position is that in contrary to, to other established monetary unions like the US, where there, we know there exists the possibility of defaults in subnational sovereign paper, uh, uh, that this is a luxury that in Europe we may not have, that we may not have, that we may be able to envisage. Why? Because the tension that this creates may derail the European project. Because we will then have to accept huge levels of internal migration to offset. This is what happens in the US. Typically, you know, we allow subnational governments, states, to default, and therefore, people leave Dakota, to, 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 to use a, a, a non-real example. Now, are we willing to do that? I don't think we can afford that, certainly. But this, this is a point that we can discuss. What the, what the system has to envisage is there's no other alternative. OK? Uh, now, four points was on the, uh, oh, on the point with the single resolution mechanism, liquidity resolution, uh, how much? How can, it be, oh, how can it be raised uh, in time? No? Oh, I think uh, we have to learn from the... Uh, we tend to forget that the Americans bail uh, and, and the, 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 the memory and the penalty associated to the fact that this institution will result. I mean, we tend to forget that 50% of the... Basically, all U.S. banks were nationalized over a weekend in the U.S. and nothing happened. Nobody penalizes anymore any American bank. In fact, they are more solvent, more profitable, more liquid today than most European banks. So I don't know why it would be any different in Europe. And what did the U.S. do? Say they will use as, many, as much money as necessary, what we call in the academy the bazooka effect. So what we need in Europe for the single resolution mechanism to work is to have a bazooka. To be able to tell the market, don't test me because you won't like it. 
because I have as much money as necessary. How will it raise it? And that's where the problem comes. How does the U.S. raise it? With the ability, the, the U.S. taxpayer as the last resort. So how can this work in the U.S., in the European Union, with the European taxpayer as the last resort? So of course it has to be with mutualization of that debt. Otherwise it will never work. You know, if we're going to tell the bank, you know, we will need X amount of money to rescue that bank in, let's say, Switzerland. Somebody was not in the union deliberately. And this will cost this much and it will pay by the Swiss taxpayer. Then, well, of course, we'll have a problem. Because, do you imagine, you know, a European institution telling the, Europe, the Swiss taxpayers, the Swiss or the country X taxpayer, I would deliberately to use the Swiss, not to mention the European, an existing European Union member state, you know, that you have to raise this money to pay for the, this bailout of this bank, and I tell you what that cannot work. So again, uh, we, we, you know, we have this tendency to reinvent the Mediterranean. You know, what it works, it works. And Americans are very good at bailing out banks. And actually, they make money from bailing out banks. Why? Because they do it overnight, with as much money as necessary. Of course, they remove the management, they change everything. And by the way, they don't impose unnecessary strict rules on, the, on that bank ever after so as to make sure to protect the level playing field for the other banks that that bank never makes any money. Because what the taxpayer wants is that bank that has been resolved to make money as soon as possible to get the money back to the taxpayer. Whereas in Europe we say we make sure that money doesn't make bank money because we, we have to protect the other banks. The moral hazard problem. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's another issue. Uh, very quickly, the last questions because we are coming close to yeah, the time. Yeah, the last question is very easy. I mean, okay. no taxation without representation. Uh, of course, that's the, the point. Of course, political union comes in. And that's why in every single issue of the paper, uh, in every single edition of the, of the Europe, there is a political uh, chapter. Now, how do we get to this political union? I have no idea. I'm not a political scientist. What I do know, and uh, we have forgotten, uh, there, were, there was a point not that long ago that it, there was a project of the European Constitution that almost passed, almost, um, that envisaged the idea of having a president of the European Union elected in, on the same day at the same ballot uh, all across Europe. And we will have to reestablish some sort of European authority with a moral legitimacy and democratic legitimacy to do it. How is it done? That's for another people to write that book. <laughs> that chapter of the book, I only put it here. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. Well, can we uh, then very quickly ask you to look to look into your crystal ball and tell us in, in 2025, and I'm going to ask you the same question too. Actually, I wanted to ask you to read myself. Yeah. 2025, where are we going to be in 2025? This is seven years. In 2025, years. we will have, and I'm willing, I'm willing to, 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 to write it down, and hopefully write that I will survive by then. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back here today. Uh, we will certainly see this. I have no doubt in my mind. Is it what, sorry? It is, it is. Ah, it is, it is, okay. It will be at the That's an easy one. Uh, we will easily have a fiscal backstop for the resolution. We will have a EU budget with, with fiscal capacity. And we will have a Minister of Finance for the Eurozone. And the only question I have is whether we will have a European Parliament for the Eurozone that is different from the European Parliament. Well, that's, a, that's why I have a question. Uh, uh, whether we will have a subcommission, whether every member will be, uh, every member of the European Union will then have adopted the euro, I don't know, by 2025. 
But what I mean is we will have European political institutions for the Eurozone. Whether they are the same for the Euro area or not, for the European Union or not, that I, I, I don't know. And will you be willing but to tell us uh, how many members we're going to have in the Euro area and how many members in the oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The ones we have now plus some others. But all the members that are in today will be in, in 2025. Or there will be no monetary union. Okay, I see. That's clear. That, that, that you can hold me to next year. Massimo. I mean, I have a bit of a less optimistic uh, view, and uh, I mean, for sure, I. I do, let me ask you Do you think one current member of the European Monetary Union can be left out or thrown out or voluntarily leave? Of the Euro area. Of the Euro area. I mean, with, if, with, if, with if the Monetary Union resistant? I mean, if Italy does, okay, there will be no monetary union. I fully so no is the answer. So the answer is no. So, but if no, Spain is, it, it, does, it Spain. doesn't mean that that cannot happen. But if, know, Spain, if Spain is out, do you think there can be monetary union without Spain? That's, that's an interesting point because the six of the members think that they own this thing. Sure, but that was no. I mean, was it, joke. going back to the crystal ball, yeah, I, I think that for sure there will be. Kind of more step forwards in terms of uh, financial integration. And I think these are the, the ones that, very, you know, it's uh, uh, there will be more, more steps. I think it's also there's plenty of evidence, at least from an empirical point of view, that the, 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 the private channel of resharing, kind of working through the financial markets, the, the, the banking sector, the you know, the, the holding of a, of a, uh, equities and and, uh, and bonds in there works in you know, to smooth uh, asymmetric shocks. That's kind of something that. I don't think that there will be a lot on the on the on the fiscal side on the, on the on the fiscal no. capacity. No, and honestly, I I I, I have kind of a, a bit of a fears that in uh, maybe not you know you said 25, 25, I I have big fears that uh, we, we no the entire project actually might fail. Oh, the other thing we will see is large European banks. Mergers, mean, mergers of Merger and acquisition. Significantly European banks of all It hasn't happened so far. Huh? Uh, it will happen much sooner than we think. I'm delighted uh, by, and energized by well, your Well, the paper today talks about one of those possible Yeah, no, I think that's, that's well, okay. Well, that, that we will hold you to it, uh, Fernando. And I will yeah, please, uh, promise us that you will come back. You will come back Hopefully. and tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you both very much for a very interesting uh, discussion. I mean, this is uh, bread and butter for, for uh, Bruegel, and we'll be delighted to continue this discussion. But for the moment, thank you, Fantasio Nico and FF, for, for making this possible. Thank you, Fernando, for coming. And Massimo for, for, for taking the other side. And we'll hopefully, we'll come back next year. Thank Please you. Uh, join me in thanking our speakers. And, uh, Thank you. Okay. Well done.